0: Welcome back to another episode of Fret Buzz, the podcast. Hi, my name is Aaron Sefcik, and each week we focus on how we musicians and professionals approach our craft, giving insight to help us all become more informed and better musicians. This week we change things up just a little bit. It's a blast from the past. Mr. Tony Skultz is joining us to talk with Paul Barson about his new project, The Weed Garden, and his new album. Boy interrupted. I'm going to let Tony do all the introductions, so let's jump right in on Fret Buzz, the podcast. Fret Buzzers, good morning.
1: (laughs) How's everybody? So, today on the show, uh, I want to introduce one of our guest hosts, Paul Barson, composer, multi instrumentalist, uh, very good friend of ours, and personally, Uh, I would have to say someone I have a lot of history with in terms of teaching and uh, this man had taught me a lot about not just how to sort of live in a creative way but how to assess things and always look for sort of the critical aspects of what I was trying to do and just made me all around uh, just a better musician and uh, just have a tremendous amount of respect for him so when he asked to come on uh the podcast that jumped at the chance when Aaron had kind of put this together so uh Paul Barson's new project the weed garden right uh had just come out with a new album uh boy interrupted uh recently this week so uh welcome Paul to the show and uh yeah I'm anxious to hear sort of uh, the genesis of this project and lots of other things out there so
2: yeah yeah well thank you Tony I really appreciate the chance to to do this um yeah, I don't even know where to where to start with all this. I mean, we we go back quite a ways. Um, you know, I don't know, like two thousand. Yeah, 2000,
1: 2001, I think was when I first started. Shut <laughs> up, at your studio
2: with a guitar and
1: like teach me <laughs> how to write.
2: <laughs> well, I appreciate the nice words. Um, yeah, um, I don't know. Um, I mean, I guess I'm I'm ready to go here. I got I got my got my favorite coffee mug. Yeah. Um, I should share this actually this is this is this used to be this is a beloved mug here it used to do this thing where um, you know it has all these like kids swimming in the ocean and you would put it in the microwave or whatever and heat it up and the heat would actually reveal that well I'll show you what it'll reveal it's old enough now where you can kind of see it but if you look really carefully you can see that there's like giant sharks (laughs) yeah yeah. water yeah I love this thing my daughter gave it to me that's awesome. So anyway, that's my 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 totem hero. So I'm
1: I'm i yeah. good. Yeah. Sh- can we do a shameless coffee plug?
2: Oh boy, <laughs>
1: Bone, Bones Coffee. Have you guys tried Bones? No. I mean, Aaron, you're not a coffee drinker. No, I don't right? drink coffee. Okay, so it's, yeah, we won't have to make this too too long. Yeah. Paul, if you're into it, Bones Coffee, oh gourmet God. stuff. Yeah, it's like forty five bucks a bag or something like that for a pound of coffee, but it's like really brilliant stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Just, just write. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have a tumbler when I go into classes. My students are like, "Why do you drink that tumbler so much?" I'm like, It's bones, man. It's bones. Anyway, do yeah. the album. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah. What do you want to? Well, do you wanna start? Aaron,
2: uh,
1: what, I guess we should start with maybe like um, you know because Aaron and I have listened to it. Um, mm-hmm. The album has now come out. Uh, was it October 1st? Was the release? mistaken, Right. Okay. Yeah. If you always want to get maybe get into the beginnings of its genesis, maybe like uh, some of the things that uh, you felt compelled to do with this recording and this project.
0: Yeah. And maybe a little bit of history of uh, I know you've put out some previous stuff. So, uh, what number album is this? And what, yeah, exactly. Like what differs yeah. this album versus the ones that you maybe have done in the
2: past? Well, okay, so that's something I ought to probably come right out with. It's yeah. like I've been I've been living in the academy for the last thirty years, so all of this stuff has been on the back burner for like since, in a way, since before I met Tony. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I when I was nineteen, I was uh, playing in a band full time and going to school full time, and um, you know, it was about nineteen eighty. So 1980 is the year that Pablo Escobar made, I think, $24 billion selling cocaine, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, the band thing was where all of the, that's where all the fun was, you know. That's where the rush was, and I was having a great time, and we were playing a lot. We were playing every week, and we were playing along the Gulf Coast area and in, in farther north, and, you know, having a blast, and writing some music, starting to get into doing some originals and stuff. But I was also going to school full time, so we'd be playing three to seven nights a week. We had a gig at um, Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. That, if you've ever been there, there's nothing around there. There's just you know the Gulf, which at that point isn't the white sand beaches or anything. And then you go inland, and it's pretty much just bayous, right? So there were something like ten thousand enlisted personnel on this base, and we had this gig that was um, out there, and their club, the enlisted man's club, was. It was a converted C-130 Hercules hangar, which I don't know if you know what that is. It's a giant cargo plane, so it was a yeah. huge hangar. That was the club. So, but nothing else to do. There'd be three thousand people in this place every night. Yeah. And back in those days down there, you got booked for the for the week. Like you didn't just play, come in and play the night, and then next band the next night. You were like the house band for the week. So we just either drive over there from Mobile where we were based, or we'd just sleep on the bus behind the club. Mm-hmm. you know but meanwhile I'm going to school full-time so I'm kind of burning the candle in the middle and I realize after a while that that's not gonna you know that's just not sustainable so um, I would go to school and see my professors because I was a music major at the time and I'd see them you know looking like they'd had a decent night's sleep and weren't in danger of getting their utilities cut off or any of that kind of stuff and then I'd go out and play these gigs, where all the goosebumps were but on every break there'd be somebody you know some new friend trying to stick something under my nose you know so i just thought okay if i wanna if i want to figure out how to make this work um you know and you know maybe i don't know have some sort of a stable life meet somebody settle down have kids live to be 30 that'd be good you know because there was just you know there was crazy stuff going all around so i just sort of made the call when i was 19 it's like i'm gonna pursue a more stable music career and kind of put all this stuff, you know, on the side burner or back burner. And over the years, you know, I played in a lot of bands. I actually played in a, Tony and I had a band for, I don't know, about a year, about a year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, it was a blast, but it was all stuff that I was kind of doing just to kind of keep a hand in, just to remember, like, do I remember how to play in a band, you know, any of that kind of stuff. So, so really this is, so what this all comes down to is this is the first album. You know, all the rest of my music output that's published is concert music, because that's been my career for the last 30 years, is, um, you know, teaching and, and uh, you know, composing for, you know, orchestra and chamber ensembles and stuff like that. So um, so that's, that's been the bulk of my output. So I've got this backlog of all of this music that has to be, you know, arranged and produced and recorded and, and put out there. So that's kind of, this is the first step in that process.
0: Wow. Interesting. So uh, some of this stuff does go back decades.
2: No, not really. Actually, what happened with the creative side of it is about, I mean, this is when I decided to leave Mobile and go to music school seriously and Mm -hmm. really kind of go down that road and, you know, spend the rest of my life, um, you know, practicing double bass and stuff like that. You know, (laughs) that was my instrument. Um, And so, uh, you know, I mean, I just did to put my act in that basket. So I stopped writing songs for probably 15 years. I just didn't even think about it because I just knew that if I started diving back into that, it would be like this big magnet that would suck me there. And, you know, I had... A family to support, and needed to, you know, the, do the whole academic track and tenure and all that kind of stuff. Just felt like that was what I needed to do. So, so it wasn't until about the mid 2000s that I started to get back into songwriting. And Of course, by that time, you know, recording technology had completely changed. So I had to retool mm-hmm. um, all of the work that I had done in recording was, you know, from pre-digital days. So I had to relearn all that stuff because one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to create a curriculum, um, where I was teaching that was included songwriting and, you know, analyzing that stuff, uh, to whatever degree and, um, you know, recording and production and stuff. So I came up with some classes and, and, you know, started moving things in that way. And then we got a recording studio, which really kind of moved that along. Um, but you know i had to relearn how to do all this stuff um so it wasn't really you know most all the songs on this album really come from probably post 2008 or 10 you know and some of them are new i mean the plan was done i think i wrote it last fall and recorded it in may or something mm-hmm. in this tiny I'm, I'm in a closet here i don't know if you can really tell it's like a few feet over here. here is a bunch of guitars and there's some amps over here and it's about Five and a half feet deep. I mean, I'm like, right. Yeah. So it's a really challenging place to record. Um, you know, maybe we could talk about that at some point. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, it's it's kind of a new venture. Um, you know, and it's just been sitting around for a long time. I think I probably have about 50 songs that are just there. Not, I mean, not even counting anything I'm going to write in the next you know year or whatever. So. Right. So, so I have a lot of work to do.
1: One of the things that I, I found fascinating on the album, and, and you should all listen to it, people who are listening, because I think it's a really good record. Um, when uh, when Paul sort of uh, gave me the uh, sort of the preview of the album, and uh, and I started to write the review for it, um, there were a lot of things that I kind of noticed uh, right out the gate. And one one of those I think which kind of connects to something we're talking about right now is is this idea that I, I don't know how you feel about this, Paul, but I don't know if you could achieved if you could have achieved the same effect. With this record, had you not had what thirty years of compositional experience in Western art music under your belt? And I'm not sure if you say it's that's an unfair assessment or not. But for me, as a listener, I kind of hear like all all these vestiges of of just compositional technique um, behind mm-hmm. these tracks that are supposed to be in some ways pop, but at the same time not pop. You know what I mean? Um, it's it's not a traditional sounding. Uh, rock record. I think it, it's sort of a, an amalgamation of so many different styles and techniques. And I think that's what makes it really compelling.
2: Mm. Well, thanks. I mean, I guess I was kind of hoping that, because I know I'm coming at this from a really bizarre path. This is not the usual thing at all. So, um, Yeah, I mean, you know, when I listen to it, I, I hear that stuff, too. And some of it surprises me, because none of it's intentional. I mean, this is very intuitively created kind of music for me so um so when i listen to it or when somebody points out oh you know this kind of reminds me of this song or or somebody else you know I'll, I'll think oh i hadn't thought of that but yeah it absolutely makes sense and i think part of it has to do with that um i mean actually one of the things i think it'd be kind of cool to talk about is just like listening you know what do people how does people's listening reflect or even um you know produce the kind of creative decisions that they make so my listening is kind of weird it's like a mile wide and an inch deep in everything except for rock and the classical tradition because that's what all my trainings in mm-hmm. So it's like I've kind of heard a little bit of everything you know so you know North African guitar bands from Mali or whatever it's like yeah I heard that I don't know I can't tell you that much about it except for maybe what I've observed but I think there's just all that stuff shows up and people um, notice it. Now, what I'm wondering is, does that make a sort of interesting, eclectic synthesis of something or is it just kind of a, a mess? <laughs> you know, And, I, you know, I, I don't think it's a mess, obviously, but um, but I guess what I'm curious about is what is it, you know? Because like Tony said, I mean, I listen to this, and if you listen to the bass lines on this album, I mean, everything's melodic. Like the whole thing, the vocals and the bass Mm -hmm. are like this two-voice texture in all the stuff that I do. And I don't think of it that way, it just comes out that way, and I think it has to do with... I mean, I'm really a bass player, you know, So, and my influences are players that were pretty melodic people like, you know, Squire and McCartney and... Berlin and people like that. Those are the people that I listened to growing up. So, yeah. So they, I can't sort of just play eighth notes straight. I mean, I would love to be in ACDC, but I can't. I, can't. Yeah, I know. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I think I gets to the heart of a, something that
1: Aaron, you and I have talked about mm-hmm. even in the past on this show about sort of how we assimilate style and are we conscious of that, you know, sort of that bring in of different styles Does it inform our playing, or or in some ways, do we just kind of make conscious decisions to sound like a certain band we're writing? I know, know when I sit down and I actually write some things for the guitar, in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, I want want sort of this effect to happen. Like, I want to sound like Satriani, or I want to sound like this kind of thing. And then I have to shut that off and say, you know what, it's not the way to go ahead and compose. I should Mm -hmm. sort of just, like, hear in my head um, sort of the passage I'm trying to emulate. But for whatever reason, no matter how complex or how stylistic or something i try to create comes out there's always this little kind of i don't know flavor of an influence and i can't get rid of it you know what i mean i don't know if you guys feel the no. same way
2: don't i mean that's you know that's what i mean that's what i mean who was it i think ravel or somebody you know was somebody asked him about you know developing your voice as a composer and you just said you know just imitate what you know and once you get Attuned enough with your own tendencies and everything, it'll be your voice, you know. Uh, but it'll also be based on something that already works. So you know, that's not bad advice, I don't think. Um, yeah. But I, I, there are ways to get around that. I mean, there are a lot of you know, sort of very not self-conscious composition. I mean, this is one of the things: is that it's a little, it's almost too much of a benefit. Is that since I've been teaching composition for thirty years, um, you know, I, I have all these tools to not get stuck. Because you yeah. know I'm dealing with students all the time. They come in. I just like I don't know what to do with this. So I got to give them all these things. Right. My problem is that I have too many of them because I can sit around and just come up with stuff all day. And then now you have to make decisions about 14 different things. Yep. And you know it just makes the whole drags the whole process out and takes a lot of energy. So you know you got to kind of balance that. But what one of the things I do is I just force the situation so that almost all of my decisions are totally intuitive. Like everything you hear on this album that it sounds like it's all worked out, like there's counterpoint all over it. Mm-hmm. It's just, I can't help it, you know? It's just like, and it, and it sort of behaves kind of like counterpoint does, but um, but I don't think about that. I make everything, I vocalize everything. Like all these mm-hmm. guitar parts and the bass parts and the voice parts and the drum parts and everything else, I kind of usually start out by just singing them. Yeah. Yeah, I had a really good teacher who just passed away a couple of weeks ago, actually. Um, John? Chris, Chris yeah, Rouse. Chris Rouse. Yeah. yeah, and uh, yeah, he was like the first one to say, oh, just get your hands off the instrument, because you're just going to do motor memory yep. there, and just vocalize it. It's the closest connection to your brain anyway, so just see if you can sing it, and if you can sing it, you can kind of capture at least the essence of what you're trying to do. This know. is
1: something for for our listeners. This is, for me, one of the most important techniques that I've learned from Paul. Uh, I remember when I was a student, and I was a really student. i am going
2: to be honest.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I can know. have this argument. I was a bad student.
2: Okay. No, well, it okay. wasn't you're until have, much later,
1: cry. decades Decades later, that I was like, oh, this is what he was trying to tell me. Okay, I, I kind of get this, but funny. at the time, I don't know. You're right. It's, well, no, it's I remember true. The it's like you know, I see us it.
0: having, you know, many times where you'd come back from one of Paul's. It's like Paul, oh, you tell me
1: this stuff. I'm like, I don't, I don't remember. that you, you were, I used to you fight. were very I,
0: much uh, at that time. You were still uh, trying to find your way out of that box and kind of what you were just talking about, how you were struggling with, with, um, you know, finding your own identity. And I remember there was a really uh, a simple. I don't remember the name of the song, uh, but there was a simple tune that Paul had you write, and it was pretty much against everything that you were doing at the time, um, and you kind of it was it was forcing you to go in a direction that you weren't really used to going, and it was kind of kind of entertaining to watch the whole thing happen.
1: <laughs> oh, you mean, you mean ba- oh yeah, I remember actually remember that piece. It, that was a uh, that was and sort of an extrapolation on a Joe Pat. You remember that Paul, the, the, the Joe Pass progression that oh, i, I yeah, took it, you know, yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah yeah or something like that or whatever and but i, 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 I vaguely remembered i remember that what you're talking about but i can't remember all.
1: The yeah things. and the way you kind of had me do the progressions i was like oh i don't i don't hear it that way but it, it's true it's like i mm-hmm. there are new exposures i think to to new idioms that we have to listen to and well okay so be that as it may i, I think the point i'm trying to go with this is that mm-hmm. one of the most important things i learned uh which i i, I when I figured this out for me as a writer, it made things just a lot more sense is to always audiate things first. And, and that was really liberating because, I mean, I, I, I would I mean guitar players. We're just guilty of this. We pick the guitar up. We are so mechanically driven to what we feel in the hands and shaping and formations feel good. That mm-hmm. we sort of that that informs our compositional techniques more than anything, and I think for listeners out there, especially guitar players, you know, I, if you want to become better writers, that's sort of what I take away from all this is that you know it is okay to sort of put the instrument aside and hear passages mm-hmm. before you put them to paper. I mean, I even in the realm of guitar uh, guitar writing. Uh, mm-hmm. Even Va used to talk about this uh, in guitar techniques a lot. He would say, "Try to hear the next note before you play it. You know, try right. to hear the next yeah. next so before you're
2: I play it on the piano." Going, "Is that right? You're already barking up the wrong tree. You've yeah, yeah. You've given up your your decision making mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I I think of it as forcing happy accidents. You know. So, like for instance, okay, for guitar, like here's here's a trick I advise everybody to try." Go to a guitar in your studio that has fairly light gauge strings on it so it won't cause any real problems, and just randomly crank the tuning pegs a couple of times and don't pay any attention to what you're doing, okay? Now, tune them all to the closest pitch right. that they happen to arrive at. Play standard chords on them. See what comes out. Like, a lot of it's going to be train wreck, but every once in a while you find a tuning that you just go, oh, there's magic in these sounds i have all the right resonant open strings when i play a c chord on the seventh fret or whatever i get this and i don't even know what it is you know yeah. mm-hmm. and you just let that kind of stuff happen um bird and cage is written that way i just took a guitar and just like went on three pegs or something and it came out to be pretty close to an a7 chord or something like the open tuning you know yeah. Just D's and C's and yeah.
1: with that, can I ask a question? Let me let me in your opinion, because I know Aaron and I've had this discussion many times in the past. Do you think guitar players get locked into the theoretical thing too much? Where uh, we they, all... where we sort of we yeah. judge and analyze to a degree where the, the I don't know if there's a magic quality to composition, but like sort of the, the, the you know what I mean the stuff that breeds and and really sounds good organically just gets kind of washed out by judging it and saying, well, should this progression work this way? I'm not really resolving my seven chord this way because car, car players, I mean, we, we just, we, 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 are good at that at yeah, thinking in yeah. formulas. And
2: um, it's a good last resort. I think, you know, it's the kind of thing where it's like, if, if the, if, if you don't really just know spontaneously what the solution is. So like by telling you to hear the next note, um, then there are intellectual doors you know that you can use but they're they're kind of you know they're kind of a last resort or for specific purposes i guess so you know that anything you can do to break that is good so you know like for instance one of the best things i can um, refer people to is brian enos oblique strategies um, I don't know, do any of you guys know? A, no. Okay, Great. Yeah, I've heard it. So in 1977, Brian Eno published this deck of cards called Oblique Strategies. He and a designer named Peter Schmidt made them. They're really cool. You know, if you get an original deck, it's like 300 bucks in it, but you can buy a new one. Or there's an app. And basically the whole idea was Eno was in the studio. Paying, you know, They're paying all his money every day just to be there. And he's got to make all these production decisions because that was, you know, he's producing you know, talking heads and starting to work with YouTube and making these really iconic recordings. And so, um, he just said, well, I need a shortcut to ideas. And it, he realized, I don't know where I actually, I don't, I should look this up. I don't know where he got the idea, but that just a little phrase, um, of the right kind, whether it has anything to do with music or not, is going to make you think of a solution. So, um, you know, so it's called oblique strategies because I'm looking it up now, actually, I am, you know, <laughs> Um, uh, because instead of taking a direct path to the problem, you go the long way around the barn and just sort of arrive at wherever you arrive. But the, the beauty of this is that the phrases involved don't necessarily have anything to do with music, but they will make you think of something related to what you're working on. So let me just, I'll just open it up. The card that came up here on my app is you can only make one dot at a time. That could mean anything, yeah yeah, 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 but if you put it in the context of a problem that you're trying to solve, it's going to mean something, and the point is it may not be the solution, but you weren't thinking of anything a minute ago, mm. like you were just a blank, like, I don't know what to do, you know, so at least now you've got a prompt, you think of a solution, and then you just go, well, okay, is this actually a valid viable solution to the problem or not and and you go on. That's why you you can never get stuck. I mean other solutions are things like just write it down as a problem. Just write it as a question on a piece of paper or on a word processor or something and just start making up answers. Just bullshit answers. Don't even think about like is it a viable solution because the creative side of it and the evaluative decision making side are two totally different things. There's a great podcast by John Cleese it's not a podcast. It's a it's a video that you can find on YouTube um, called How about, Yeah, but, I've seen it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he just got, it's beautiful because he just breaks the whole thing down into open mode, which is where you're just curious and making stuff up, and you don't care what comes up. Right, okay. and closed mode, which is okay, now we got to decide. <laughs> we have to we have to count this guitar solo that I just improvised, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Like now I have to go decide like which first phrase is really getting what I want you know and that kind of stuff you know so it's just two totally different parts of the process but the the reason people get stuck is because they try to do the second thing simultaneously with the first thing so it's almost better just to not even know what your solution is going to be until it happens so another technique is like this is some an exercise I used to make composers do all the time I don't know if I ever had you do this but um where you write a melody right or something a chord progression whatever it is you write then you write something that goes with it, you know. So maybe a, a counter melody or, you know, something to go over chords or whatever. Then what you do is you mute, because I'm having people do this in a dot. Mm-hmm. You have people mute the second thing they came up with. And now, um, may, or sorry, mute the first thing they came up with. Mm-hmm. Now make up something to go with the second thing. So now mm-hmm. they make a the third thing that goes with that. And at the end of the day, you get rid of the second thing, put the first and third things together and see what happens. You know, there's going to be train wrecks and weird like, nah, I have to fix that. But there are going to be these moments where you just go, oh, my God, that's magic. And I never would have thought of it. I never would have just put my hand there. You know, I never would have yeah. thought oh, that. note goes with this one. Yeah. You know,
0: yeah. So oftentimes I'll take like a, a guitar solo. And because, you know, it's on a grid and in, in a doll, um, yeah. I'll just shift it you know, a beast exactly. or two ahead and then all of a sudden the accents hit in a different spot and you're like, whoa, that's I never would have done that, but that's amazing. That sounds great. That's
2: kind of what it's sort of what part of genius is, is knowing, hmm mm-hmm. this orientation might be cool. Do it. And then all of a sudden it's like wow. And that's one of the things that the dog gives you is that low investment testing platform where you can just go, what happens if I take this line and <laughs> and and have it imitate itself at one measure? Yeah.
1: Yeah. You can always if, delete.
2: Uh, next thing you know, it's like you're writing, you know, music that sounds like some crazy person made it and it's awesome. Yeah. But all you did was <laughs> you're just, you know, dragging stuff around on a screen, you know? Yeah. That well, was enough. One well, of I, the
1: reasons I, why I say that uh I was a really bad student um in my paul because I, I wasn't ready for the sort of the, the creative freedom and flexibility i think many many writers use and it wasn't until after i kind of got on my own and and, and ironically had to sort of teach writing in a larger context beyond music into literature and different things that i got to guys like uh, i'm not sure if, if you guys are familiar with edward de bono uh, for, for listeners out there, if you want a really good book on creative, like like lateral thinking and thinking about, you know, the, the phrase outside the box is really cliche today with thinking in a way that is, we're talking about today, sort of using different modes of thinking. Uh, he wrote a book called Serious Creativity. Um which is it's kind of things like this it's like you, you you take like a, take a chair identify the elements of the chair what happens if i take two legs away what, what what does the chair become how can i apply that to a problem and these and this sort of approach is like more modeled for for business models and mm-hmm. uh, innovation in business but i think creatively speaking there's a lot to be said by experimentation just like the what mm-hmm. if i do this thing what if I just take away well, it You know that's what I
2: mean? exactly and, it. Because the best way to break a bad habit is to, to destroy it. So if you just make whatever that is off limits, now you've got to find another solution. So normally legs might have, or chairs might have four legs. Right. Now you have a, a problem you're not going to solve by the conventional thinking. And so, you know, that's, that's a really useful...
1: And that begs the question, isn't it? Why do, at university, we teach tradition so much? Is it just a matter of to kind of get oh, into... Oh, the... boy,
2: you got time for another podcast? <laughs> I was going to say, this is going... <laughs> right. Yeah, right. I, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, there's lots of reasons for that, you know. And I mean, it's, you know... And even on my website, I say some stuff about how... how what tough sledding doing the kind of music that's on Boy Interrupted met with in academia, you know, because, I mean, these are classical musicians. They didn't get there by, you know, they got there by being laser-focused on being really good at that one thing. And these people, as performers, I mean, you just can't... Well, Tony has a sense, and a lot of people do, but, I mean, these people can just play. They are players. Mm -hmm. Um, They're amazing. But they didn't get that by being... Broad and interested in a whole bunch of different, you know, music and stuff, and they may know a lot about art, but when it comes to playing the cello, they kind of know everything about that, and that's really the requirement for the job. So it's not surprising that they're not open to a lot of other stuff. Because there's also this classical music bias thing. It's a pretty classist, you know, part of musical culture. It just always has been. I mean, the church and the aristocracy. I mean, this is where this all stuff. Where the stuff white from. men.
1: Kind of doing their thing, and yeah,
2: yeah, and even when it didn't, when it got out from under the thumb of that kind of stuff with people like Beethoven, who was doing things like having public concerts in the early 1800s, it's kind of you know that was unheard of, you know, much prior to that. So even with that, he was still beholden to the same basic patronage that everybody else was. So um, you know, so there's this kind of hard and fast classist kind of thing to it. So lowbrow music like you know rock and roll you know is is um you know some people love it some people hate it but i mean there are people the the more traditional instruments tend to have practitioners that are less open to that stuff than others and that's fine because you know at a school of music like that their their basic job is to preserve the tradition and teach people how to do it and in the case of where i taught which was a big music ed program was to train good high school band directors and choir directors and stuff like that so you know really far out creativity is just not really on the it's not so much on the to-do list so that was
1: the goal would you say that would be sort of like the that was the focus of uh the academic side of things was to kind of get your students come through i mean not that that was your personal pedagogy but um sort of in terms of the institution the expectation was to produce people who would out and be band directors and music educators well
2: not for me But for the other fifty colleagues on my faculty, um, that was really a parcel of the goal. They're training music educators. Okay. My composition students were composition majors. They weren't music ed majors. They wanted to just do creative work, and and, you know, which is great. But you know, that's not an easy environment to do that in. You know, because you're, it's just a climate that's pretty conservative, and you know, for. Perfectly understandable reasons, it's fine. But they, I mean, some people, I just ran into some bad luck with, you know, because when you're in academia and you get reviewed, things kind of depend sometimes on who's on the committee. Well, I happened to get, you know, a post tenure review committee one year that had people on it that just hated the fact that I was writing, you know, rock music and, and stuff. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, I even got a, this is, I got to cut this out and frame it somewhere. I got a, a letter from my dean. I hope I can say this. Um, you know that Yeah, said, you can't actually. Yeah, there you go. Well, performing original music um, in bars is an inappropriate activity for a tenured professor of composition. I love that. No way. Are you wow. serious? Yeah, I just summed up the whole thing, and it's like, okay, I know where you're coming from. You know, I'm I'm sympathetic to it, but wow, that's kind of all I need to know about uh, you know what the status of this stuff is here. So yeah, that was part oh, of the con. It took me this long to just say, okay, I'm just going to start putting this stuff out now because I just you know, I didn't uh, the the thing is State College is a great place in lots of ways, but it's kind of remote. Um it's not very big and it's a fairly conservative yeah. Yeah. Pennsylvania kind of place. So Yeah. Um you know, there wasn't like a a new music scene there you know there was small stuff there were the house parties and the you know the the venues that every Thursday would have you know some singer-songwriters or whatever I mean there was a lot of that kind of stuff but there wasn't like a scene so I tried to put some bands together to do this stuff while I was while I was working there and you know they were the <laughs> the upside was there were really good bands because I was working with music majors and people who like you just write the parts out and give it to them and they're music musical enough to where you can be really efficient and make a really good sound really fast. And they're wonderful kids, and some of them are my students. But at the end of the day, they're they're music students. They've got other priorities, and they're not going to be able to just drop everything and you know go out for two weeks playing this stuff out. Right. You know? So um, so but it was good practice for you know finding out the limits of what I can do with this. Because no. the thing is, these songs are kind of complicated. The arrangements are kind of complicated. So to do them live is kind of a challenge. I do some of them solo, but not... The real, you know, elaborate
1: ones. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, when we had Big Bang, which I remember was in some ways tied to, if I'm not mistaken, you were on sabbatical at that point, right? When we were doing Big Bang Theory. No, I'm, John,
2: I don't yeah, I remember.
1: Yeah. To remember, it's when you had when you had called me that one day and said, "Hey, I'm putting this group together." I think you were saying, "Well, my my question is like, what was the reaction? Because I because th- I always assume that was that was your sabbatical project." Was that? Not project. No, no, it's not.
2: No, it was actually. I think Big Bang was a couple of years after that. I I took okay. a sabbatical and wrote like thirty-five songs, okay. and I was like, "Wow, okay, I didn't know I could do that. That I should be doing more of that." You know,
1: right, right. Um,
2: so you know, um, yeah, that was a couple of years later. That was that was at a point where you know, I just I needed to be in a band. You know, okay. and, and with people who could. I mean, I mean. I was a bass player in this band, not a guitarist. And I, I also want to just say, like, I am I just want to be clear. Like, I, I don't consider myself a guitar player, like, at all. I mean, I don't know, you know. Um, I mean, I've always, every project I've worked with um, is as a bassist. I mean, I started playing, you know, professional gigs when I was 13 as a bass player and just did that. So, you know, the idea of being a guitarist and performing as a guitarist is still something I'm trying to get my my head around, especially when I play with guys like, you know, Tony, who, um, I mean, look, the guy can play the organ solo from Highway Star with a pick. Used to. I think about that. That was you 20 know, years ago. We're go. not tapping here. <laughs> we're, just, we're just going, you know, and it's just like, yeah. So you know, compared to the players, and also the other people you have on this podcast. I mean, I look at some of the older episodes, and I'm just like, oh, geez, you know, these people are players. Yeah. You know, and a lot of these people are people who have, you know, just sort of walked that path of being the the player. I mean, my favorite one, of course, I think was Brian Quinn. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, partly because I know him a little bit, and um, you know, I just he's the kind of guy that I wanted to be when I was 19. Like that's I sort of saw myself as this really kind of dug in working uh musician who's you know connected to you know projects that he really believes in but is capable of doing you know piecework like you know like do you, you, do you need to lay down a track for somebody's record or something but at the time, I didn't know anything about the music business I didn't have any mentors and i didn't I didn't know what I was doing so um, you know, there was just no way to follow that. And I'm not sure I had the temperament for it either. That's the other thing. As I look at guys like Brian, I'm just like, wow, how do you do that? I, do I could do what he every does. Every day, you, you know, know, just kind of walking that thing. And He's got balls of steel, that kid. Yeah, yeah, well, okay, there you go. That, pretty,
1: <laughs> that Well, he of, does. I, I mean, he does. To, to have that level of commitment, I'm, I mean, I, okay, I don't know if this comes down to, Uh, Like on my end, a lazy factor of things, but I, I could see if you put me and Brian in the same room and I grew up with Brian, I mean, we Mm -hmm. went to high school together. He'd be the kind of kid if you said to him, um, we're going to go down to Georgia for three weeks and you have to live on, you know, in a car. And rough it, but you know this, you're going to get to play in front of you know thousands of people. Go ahead and do it. He'd be like, Yeah, I'm done. I'm going there. I'm gone right now. Where do I well, pack? No. And me, I'd be like, I'm like, well, wait, am I going to be able to take like my sunscreen or I'm going to take you know, <laughs> you know, what i mean? be like, I, I, I'm too. I don't call it civilized. I don't know what the idea is, but I'm not. I'm not there. I'm not at that level. It's of, a
0: mindset. It's it's a matter yeah. of you're I'm not a
1: road dog like he is. He's, yeah, you know,
0: it's like it's like Taylor, uh, Taylor Nordberg. that was the same way. Episode yeah. 14. I just contacted him the other day. He's like, Yep going to join another a massacre an old 80s metal band and i'm i'm in i'm i'm the new member and i'm like you you you're, you're in this for
2: life and you've always been that
1: way yeah yeah he's always been like that since he was 14 years old with
2: us yeah. that would have been me if i knew how to do it cuz i can do the road thing i mean i can live on the bus and eat the crappy food and do all that kind of stuff i mean i do it on the bicycle a lot you know so yeah. um i just didn't know how to do it you know, and I didn't have people. One thing that I loved that he said—that's also a little bit different for for some people—is that he said he made he put himself in the presence of people that he admired and respected, and he could learn from. And he made himself a sponge. That's a kind of of sort of solid humility that I think a lot of creative people either don't have or don't want to exercise and you know when I was when I was 19 I was just an angry young man that wanted to you know um you know do stuff and I didn't know how uh, you know so but you know you got to have that kind of humility and um you know I I'm not sure I have it or had it but um but yeah I always admire that and you know, people that just go yeah I just humbled myself to the process and just like walk that path you know,
1: yeah, yeah I just, know it- I know Aaron and I many years ago, we, 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 we had this conversation, Aaron, you and I, for, for many years about how we did that, <laughs> you know, that was our, our, our 20s thing of being in bands and, and, you know, of course life is different for us now with the kids and everything, but at the same time, it music doesn't always have to take the path of just being in a band, there's got to be other avenues and I know there's a lot of listeners um, that kind of feel the same way that, you know, is it possible to, you know, have a really strong career? let's say as a creator of music and not necessarily be like the road dog so i guess i, I mean, like paul where do you sit on on this like could you be kind of the person that you know literally could be based in a home uh could be based in a hometown a songwriter uh, home and and still and still make a lucrative living and you know, still kind of be pretty solid with that
2: yeah oh yeah but you have to be a songwriter that's the only way to do it i mean okay. Because then you own, you know, at least your share of, you know, the creative rights, royalty money and all that stuff to the song. So if you're in Nashville, I mean, you know, you can you can do that, you know, I mean, and and, and it, but it takes the same kind of, you know, determination and, you know, <laughs> I was going to say don't take no for an answer. But the ability to take no for an answer like 3000 times before something works, yeah. that's that's the kind of grit that I think a lot of people, you know, I mean, that's just hard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking about like all the guests that we've had on the podcast and whether it's, uh, Quist or Don Ross or any one of these guys who are actually making a living doing music, um, Mm -hmm. Uh, Don Ross, he lives in uh, Canada, Nova Scotia, uh, and he travels over to Germany um, and does, you know, stuff over there. Uh, He's always doing stuff in Canada uh, and he's been doing it all his life. But now he's, you know, (laughs) number one in the world in finger picking. um, But all of these guys so I said Quist Quist is out in LA and he's making a living doing studio work and then there are people who are going to hire him to go out on tour for them and then he'll get done with that tour and then he'll come back to do more studio work and he does a bunch of YouTube pages and our YouTube channel so there's there's definitely a way to especially nowadays with with the technology that's available in the internet as opposed to even 20 or 30 years ago
2: um, mm-hmm.
0: there's a lot more opportunity to put yourself out there and make a living from it uh but you do have to put the time and the effort into it it, it doesn't come easily that's for sure
2: well and you have to be pretty stable you know emotionally yes. <laughs> yes while you're doing all this yes you know which is a problem for a lot of creative types yes you know they tend to be you know just a little. oh i don't know fragile is really the word um or if they just yeah i don't know i don't know what it is but um yeah just maintaining that consistency i mean that was another thing too that it didn't take me long to figure out i mean i'm in california now um but i spent you know the last 30 years mostly in the northeast and you know actually more than that um which is not my native territory at all i mean i grew up in the deep south i'm from alabama Hey y'all. Um, I'm in yeah. Maryland. Y'all Correct. still use that, so <laughs> yeah. You know they, they they just because they were once a the slave state, they, they think of themselves as Southern. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, and then I went to school in Arizona, and then I moved to Rochester, New York, which if anybody knows Rochester, New York, is like it's cloudy for seven straight months and six snow. feet of
1: snow. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, it's yeah. just where it is. Um, you know, but I didn't I didn't know anything about, you know, seasonal kind of stuff. And it, it it took me about five or ten years to figure out, like, why am I a completely different person in March than I am in July? You know, like, why is that? Why is it hap- like why? Did, why is it sec- second week in November? All of a sudden I'm kind of hating everybody and don't really care about all that stuff that I thought was so cool to be working on a month ago. You know, I, I didn't know, you know, and so after a while I realized like, oh this is a cycle that I'm going to have to sort of figure out how to, how to manage, you know, because one of the things about academia and music is, is crunch time is March and April. It's like being a tax accountant or something like that's Mm -hmm. when all the titles are, that's when all the papers are, you got to supervise, people are graduating, you know, there's all this stuff going on. Right. And that's when I'm like, I don't care, you know? So to, to, get the work done was you know just after uh, that many years of doing it just got to be kind of a a thing but one of the side effects of that was I knew that getting involved in any kind of really sustained project that required energy and enthusiasm for more than about five or six months was just going to be really hard so that's one of the reasons I left the northeast and one of the reasons that I retired you know I mean I actually retired from a tenured professorship at you know age 58 that's kind of <laughs> it's not That's something a lot of people do, you know. And so it's a right. step that, um, you know, wasn't easy to take, but it just had to happen. I mean, I, I, I couldn't really spend too many more Februaries in state college. There's a reason February is the shortest month, by the way. You know, because it just sucks balls. It's just. Oh. <laughs> I
1: I'm not go for a scientific answer. I'm like, I'm waiting to like, like no, on the calendar
2: crazy. or something. How fast can we get this over with?
1: Yeah, it really does. Really it's got
2: to be at least four weeks, otherwise it's just kind of it's too wimpy. Yeah, a, call it a month. You know.
1: You now, have, now you know, do, do you think? I, I mean, I, I wanted to ask you this question for a while. Do you think that since retirement, your creative was, side of things I mean, has been has improved? Like, do you think like now you've got rid of the? I don't want to call it baggage, but I know I, I experienced this too. Like, I'm 15 years into a teaching position, and when I sit and I try to write stuff, I, I just mm-hmm. I, I can't divorce my mind from the joy of creating new things and having the great papers. You know what I mean? Like I'm in that, I'm in that mode right now. And I, I, think I yeah. You know, yeah, I'm saying and yeah, I think once you get rid, once you jettison that stuff, um, I, I hope that the creative side of things takes more of a, a front seat. I'm just curious as to, are you in that place?
2: That's a really good question. Um, Well, I know what you're talking about with the sort of feeling like there's something looking over your shoulder. It's an
1: emotional drain, really. Uh,
2: Well, yeah, and, you know, with my interaction with that thing I was talking about before, you know, kind of trying to make this songwriting and production thing part of my professional portfolio as part of my academic job and how that went, you know, it's like that sort of made it just that much harder to do it based on the kind of thing you're talking about um so I don't know you know um I think in a way it has but it's only been like six weeks since I officially you know retired so I don't know the other thing is you know there's a lot going on right now we're actually moving at the end of the month from California to New Mexico Hmm. uh, where we have a little house and um, so I got to build a studio down there nice yeah, yeah, it should be, yeah. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Very cool. That'd be good. So I'll know after that where I stand in terms of that stuff. But meanwhile, I'm still working on stuff. I mean, I got, I'm got working on some the second album and some singles and things like that. So I seem to be able to get work done um, just fine. I mean, to t- okay. t- get out here after my last semester of teaching in Pennsylvania, um, to be able to get this album finally mixed and out the door you know
1: i was going to ask what kind of i mean i i like the record you know like i said I, I, when i wrote the review on the record i was listening to it from different angles and i have favorites on the album um mm-hmm. i'm curious as to like you know what has been the the public reaction to this record and uh, maybe how does that inform what you're going to do next
2: well so far it's i've been kind of lucky in the sense that everything i've heard has been positive and believe me after all of these years of sitting on this stuff going <clears throat> what's going to be the take on this when I put it out the door you know that that's really reassuring i mean your you know review um actually other people said some things kind of like you know talking about the the just the arrangements and just the the sound of the thing you know that the, there were things that they really liked in it um You know, so that's been good. Um, For some reason, the song that um, people seem to like the most, and of course, now we live in this world, and maybe this would be an interesting thing to talk about in a minute. We live in this world where your value as a whatever is entirely dependent on how often you can get people to click on you.
1: Yeah, (laughs) right. right.
2: So, you know, based on that, um, the opening track, to my surprise, because it's long and kind of meanders a little bit, um seems to be a really popular one that one and the last one hmm.
1: that's Which, interesting yeah that's really interesting
2: um but it's spread out i mean i get a lot of reaction to different songs and pe- some people will just go wow i had a former um composition student of mine you know text me the other day and just went anchors holy awesome you know it's like
1: right the in the center. center that's like right in the middle of the yeah
2: it's, yeah. yeah it's just after the midpoint and mm-hmm. um you know, and it's sort of a relief tune for me in the, in the scope of the album. It's one of those. There needs to be something kind of buoyant and light here, you know, before I lean into this next heavy thing, you know. So, um, so yeah. But for some reason, people seem to like that first track. You know, it's it's it, of the feedback stuff at the end.
1: There's this really weird thing going on right now, which I, I think probably because we're becoming dinosaurs. That's how I feel that the that the generation of music listeners today they, they want something spoon-fed to them quickly they just want to click it quickly they want to hear it quickly and if they're not interested they move on to the next thing because it's so readily available to them when well, we were, we were growing up it's like we invested our time that. into an album we listened to it yeah. you know yeah
2: well you know and i mean people still do that you I mean, think so? people who do that oh yeah. oh yeah but you know those are uh, that's a niche you know, the hardcore listener is kind of a niche, you know, the rest, everybody's, you know, kind of, I mean, I have a, a, another former student of mine that interns in a studio in Philadelphia. It's one of the bigger, you know, houses there. And, um, you know, mostly what they do is they come in and they get talented young people and, and have them rap to pre-made beats and, um, you know, and put a product together, you know? And so it's like, that's, Got its place, but that's kind of, in a way, the McDonald's hamburger of the music cuisine world. Yeah, you know exactly. So there are always going to be people that are going to be into really thoughtfully made food. You know, it's just that that's not. They're not going to have billions served. That's all.
0: It's interesting. I was. I can't remember who it was. um Famous person, well uh, liked. Um, I can't remember who it was. I want to say it's like. Pete Townsend, but it wasn't like it, I don't think it was him, but it was basically this person saying um, that the rap hip hop of today is like the rock and roll of the 60s, and how, um, you know, at that time back in the 60s, it was this big push against uh, music at the time and all this, you know, what was happening. And the same thing that is kind of going on now with rap. And hip-hop and whatnot like that and obviously that was you know rap and hip-hop was back in the 90s and um mm. and the beginning of it was back in the 80s but now it's really hit the mainstream now if you, you go to the top you know 100 hot top 50 um it's, no, it's all it's all hip-hop and rap yeah. um and that's that's kind of the way things have turned it's it's kind of interesting how you said dinosaurs and how we look at things and no longer is it rock and roll anymore. It's now morphed into something different and quite possibly 30 years from now, 20 years from now, it'll morph again. Um, It's, it's just really neat to see this whole thing happen before our eyes and, and Mm -hmm. albums, you know, they, they have gone down and streaming has gone way, way, way up. And um, Mm -hmm. in terms of the numbers and how people consume their music now with streaming Mm -hmm. Uh, and the album, an album actually vinyl sales are actually increasing right they now.
1: are increasing i was going to say yeah. and and Absolutely. it's kind
0: of interesting that people are starting to get back into the music but it's different now it's 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 definitely a different scene it's a different environment in terms of how people consume it and how people actually listen to it and and and, and why they're listening to it it
1: would be an amazing time right now to be a musicologist I, I really do. I don't know why. I just think it's you know if you if you're looking at music as a type of like uh, pseudo anthropology, if you want to call it that, and how we sort of process our culture. I mean, I think there's so many things that are changing right now. It's fascinating. I think this is really fascinating how we. Like, well,
2: yeah, it. I think the one thing that stays the same through all of this, and even you know with classical music, like I was talking about, is patronage. Like mm-hmm. if you look at who's paying for it and how it's curated, because you know sometimes the patron and the curator are the same. You know,
1: like mm-hmm.
2: paying you to create this thing. Right. So therefore, I'm saying it will exist and it will be shared or whatever. Um, now it's, um, you know, streaming services, which, of course, sprung up in the absence of any kind of guidelines or regulations. So now we have this like really weird sort of self-generated industry. Yeah that has all of these layers to it. It's completely different from the record company model of say, the 1970s, you know. So now, again, it's that thing about how many people will click on you. So you can't get plays really on Spotify, uh, for instance, unless you're on- playlisted, right? right? So you have to get onto these playlists that people will click on and then just play all the tunes on the playlist because it's soft rock or it's whatever it is. Um, so the trick is to get on all of these playlists. That seems to be the, you know, the main business model for getting streams these days. So now there's this whole intermediary layer in the music industry of people that will pitch your stuff to the playlist curators. So you can pay. It's all pay to play. It's like in the 50s, payola was criminal. Now it's the business model, yeah, yeah you know. Yeah, yeah, that was, um, so, oh. and that's just a reality that just crept up on us, and so we just have to kind of deal with it. And I think, you know, smart um, commerce regulations will help creative people and all of that, but that's that's going to be a while coming.
1: I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, like in I don't know, a couple of decades from now, where all this is. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, but I, I, it's just it's funny. Like I remember just growing up being 15 years old. Aaron, you're the same. We I remember we had, like, the little Tascam 4-track recorders with the cassettes, and we used to, like, you know, yeah, we used to, like, make make little demos and stuff, and we used to, remember, we used to say, like, we're going to shop this little demo, and we're going to have to go from door to door and get feedback, and it's, like, you could literally just drop anything on, on YouTube and have well, glo- a global audience, like, that instantaneously. It's amazing. Yeah.
2: And that's the mixed blessing, because the platforms... Allow you to make, I mean, one of the reasons, look, you know, aside, quality aside, one of the reasons that rap is such a popular medium is it's really easy to make.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Like, because you buy a laptop and it's pretty much anything you buy has got several beats and you know. tools on it yep. to make a rap album. Yep. Like, just go into the loop library and find what you want. And if you're really good at tweaking it, you can make something really pretty interesting, you know, so, just the access is great, though, because it allows creative people that otherwise wouldn't have had a chance to make anything to make it, you know, Uh Um, I I really like that about it, the problem obviously is that what it does is um, in addition to, you know, making great stuff, it also kind of creates a lot of landfill, right, So now, now the people who really have something to say have to kind of rise through all of this yeah muck awesome to get you know to the point where somebody's going to recognize that wow this is a really cool thing so so this is you know i've been thinking about this because i just put this album out and i'm like okay where does this fit right. like that's one of the things like tony mentioned earlier like the, my path through creative work to this thing is kind of odd and a little unique and um one of the byproducts of that is that there's elements of just about every kind of music I've ever heard on this album, but it means that it doesn't fit into a genre. You know, it's some kind of rock, but I mean, I've been thinking about it for a while. Like, well, I mean, what? let me just ask you guys, like, what, what kind of, what is this?
0: And that is where we're going to leave it for today. Do me a favor, go out and listen to Boy Interrupted. And leave your comments below as to what you think the answer is. Next week, we'll get into part two and continue this awesome conversation with Paul Barson. As always, if you like what you're hearing, hit that subscribe button in your podcast player. Or if you're listening on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. And if you would, take a couple seconds, head on over to iTunes and give us a review. That helps us out. Um, and with that, that concludes today's show. Again, make sure you check out the Weed Garden's new album, Boy Interrupted, and you join us next week as we continue the conversation with Paul Barson on Fret Buzz, the podcast.